Once again, if you would turn to Mark chapter 4, reading verses 1 through 20. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Listen carefully to the holy word of God. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So they got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching we said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, and it was scorched, And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do not, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but render, but endure for a while. Then, when temptation, tribulation, and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Let's pray.
our Lord and our God, as we hear from the sower of the word, we ask, O oh Lord, that we would be those who see the produce of the Spirit's work in our lives. Renew our hearts this morning to the wonderful commitment of the gospel and the good news that is in Christ Jesus and that is found as a treasure in the word of God, his word, in Christ's name, amen. Have you ever gone to a Christian conference? Maybe a Bible camp, as I did many times as a child. But when you arrive and begin meeting many of the people, you discover, to your surprise, that many of those who are there have no commitment to the gospel at all. They are there because their own church is a sponsor of the conference and the camp. And thus they came to enjoy the fun events, perhaps hiking, sports, games, swimming, boating, and other fun events. Well, between the recreational events for fun, there are Bible studies and speakers presenting gospel messages. As the word of God is presented to all of them, it seems that Satan immediately seals their ears and hearts against the good news. Have you known some people like that in your life? Moving along, have you ever known someone who came to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Joy is just oozing over their face. Perhaps even tears uncontrollably soak their cheeks. They are so excited that Jesus has come into their life. They endure in the faith for a while. But suddenly a hardship hits their life on account of their commitment to the gospel. And at that moment they conclude that the Christian life is just not worth it. Perhaps it is persecution from friends or family or those at work. The mockery received for following Jesus and his word is just not worth all the grief. Acceptance rather than being set apart for Christ and his kingdom is more important. Saving one's own life in the world is more significant than being harassed for loving Jesus. Have you known someone like that? Well, moving along. Have you ever known someone who has heard the word and they gravitate to that word for a time, but the 
things of this world dominate their hearts so much that they cannot remain faithful to the gospel. For many, it may be wealth, it may be money that becomes such a vain pursuit of human security rather than the gospel. And yet for others, the lust and passion for multiple adventures into the world of the flesh just extinguishes the word of the gospel out of any residence in their heart. Have you known people like that? Well, congregation, (laughs) we have presented some concrete illustrations that fit into the examples that Jesus presents in his parable of the sower. Like myself, I would assume all of you who are Christians here this morning have known or come in contact with people exactly in terms of those examples. Last Lord's Day, we opened by asking this question. If the gospel is such good news, why doesn't everyone come to Jesus, the gospel of God? Why wouldn't they want such a message that releases them from the chains of bondage which strongly wraps around their hearts? Well, as we know so clearly, when Jesus entered the world There was no immediate removal of sin from the earth. In fact, as we have been noticing in Mark's gospel, the confrontation in redemptive history between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan has now reached, entered into a heightened battle between the principalities and powers of the air. Jesus and Satan are now going head to head. We have seen this battle only in their face-to-face confrontation in the wilderness, not only there, but also it continues in all intensity each day in the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is seen in Jesus' confrontation with the demons, the restoration of physical ailments, fever, sickness, disease, leprosy, the paralytic, the withered hand, the restoration of sinful hearts, the paralytic, Levi, but also in the teaching and the preaching of the word of the gospel. As we noted last week, Mark is presenting in the fourth chapter his most prolonged discourse and presentation of the content of Jesus' preaching and teaching of the good news thus far in his narrative. And it is presented in the literary form of a parable, of a parable. Congregation, we do not want to lose sight of the flow 
of Mark's narrative into Jesus' preaching in the form of parabolic story to his audience. In verse 1 of our text, we return to the sea. The sea. Remember the sea in Mark's narrative so far resembles the wilderness theme in Mark's narrative. It is a place of departure. After the temptation of Satan, Jesus passes by the sea and calls Andrew, Simon Peter, James, and John. Chapter 1, verse 16. After the situation with the paralytic, he went out to the sea and called Levi. Chapter 2, verse 13. After the healing of the man's withered hand, and the Pharisees and the Herodians hold counsel to destroy him, he withdrew to the sea. Chapter 3, verse 7. After the intense situation amid the crowd in Simon's house in Capernaum, chapter 3, verse 20, that is his confrontation with family and the delegation of the scribes from Jerusalem and their insane accusation that Jesus casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub, Jesus withdraws to the sea where a very large crowd assembles. Chapter 4, verse 1, our text. He gets into a boat, did you notice? He gets into a boat. You may recall that earlier in his ministry, he had the disciples get a boat ready because the crowd was so large that they might crush him. They were pressing against him to be healed of their diseases. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. But this time, Jesus gets into a boat and takes the posture of a rabbi. A rabbi, a teacher, the posture of sitting, sitting to teach and preach the crowd. The incarnation of the very wisdom of God himself, the final and superior rabbi of God, who will eventually be elevated to his high priestly seat, high priestly seat at the Father's right hand, is about to teach and preach the supernatural, spiritual, heavenly revelation of himself and his kingdom to the crowd. This time the crowd is not overflowing a house. This time, Jesus is in a boat on the sea, the text says. And the crowd, where are they? Where does the text say? They are on the land. The two components, the two components 
sea, and land that make up the surface of the earth. Please see that. Please see that. The setting is perfect for what we noted last Lord's Day. The spiritual is invading the natural. The setting is perfect for an agricultural parabolic story for an organic narrative conveying the spiritual and the natural. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has invaded the creation, both sea and land. The supernatural and the spiritual realm of heaven and the kingdom of God has arrived upon the plane of creation. It has arrived upon the plane of history. It has arrived in the Messiah and the gospel of good news. God's creation has never witnessed such a powerful and consummating message of organic union between the spiritual and the natural. In the words of Paul, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, he is here. He is here. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him. And in all in him all things hold together. You know the text. Colossians 1, 15, 17. Jesus is here. The new creation in the Son of God has arrived. Nothing is the same since Jesus came. Nothing is the same since Jesus came. You might want to memorize that simple phrase. Before moving on to discuss the parable itself, let us be reminded of two other crucial points about the context of this parable. First, remember that Jesus has ordained his disciples as apostles to be messengers of the good news into the world. That occurred in chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. At this point in Mark's narrative, however, Jesus is living the life of the church. We have underlined that point right before his apostles. So they understand the cost, the cost of being a servant of the Son of God. 
opposition to the gospel has now become more intense. His family has stated that Jesus is out of his mind. Chapter 3, verse 20. The delegation of the scribes. They themselves accuse Jesus that his redemptive action to save those who are demon-possessed is in reality a plot between Jesus and Satan against the Jewish established view of religion. In fact, opposition to the gospel will take on two forms. First, the everyday blasphemy against the gospel as depicted in the first three examples of the parable of the sower. And secondly, the eternal sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. A sin that claims that the Holy Spirit who accompanies the person and work of Jesus is an unclean spirit. Saying that Jesus is demon possessed. There's no specific example of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit given in the parable of the sower. Nevertheless, the church, the church, like Jesus, will face both forms of blasphemy. Secondly, concerning the context of the parable, do not forget that Jesus has already presented a parable in Mark's gospel when he asked those coming to accuse him, how can Satan cast out Satan? In chapter 3, verse 23, his parable in that case is directed right at Satan. The first parable in Mark's gospel is directed directly to Satan. And his human companions, the scribes, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Satan would have to be bound to plunder his house. Christ will plunder the whole house at the cross and in his resurrection of Satan. Does Jesus' apostles, does his church truly grasp the powerful spiritual dynamics that are occurring as Jesus enters the creation? Satan does not let up. Satan, Jesus met Satan in the wilderness and now Jesus faces the pawns of Satan on his path to the cross. These are not demons inside the scribes for Jesus to cast out. No, Jesus is now face to face with the darkness of Satan's attempt to apply Jesus' own admonition to the church. Satan will always work 
always work to divide the church against itself. The unity, the unity of the body of Christ will be paramount in the message of the apostles as they live and govern out of the church's exalted head, Jesus Christ. But the principle in our present context for the unity of Christ's church is placed placed clearly before us as we enter the parable of the sower. Look back at chapter 3, verse 35. You want to see the principle that Jesus is using now in this particular context concerning the unity of the church. Here it is. Here it is. As he enters the parable. For whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. Yes. The vehicle of proclaiming and understanding the will of God is now prescribed by Jesus. It is through the teaching, preaching of the word of God. The parable is focusing upon Jesus, the sower. And that which is sown, the word of God. Don't miss this. This is very important. I'm going to point this out in terms of the literature that is now starting to come out on this, on this parable. The parable is focused upon Jesus, the sower. And that which he sows, the word of God, the good news, the word of the kingdom. You want to be very careful here because a number of scholars are now calling this parable the parable of the four soils. Are you thinking? They're switching the narrative. The parable of the four soils. Focusing upon the four different soils on which the seed falls. Why should this be a concern? What's the difference? What's the difference? Parable of the sower. Parable of four swords? What's the difference? What's the big deal? Because you see the concept 
of understanding the parable in terms of the parable of the soils, four soils, is starting with the natural realm. The human response realm. Rather than with starting with the supernatural revelation of Jesus' appearance and his essential message of spiritual redemption and reconciliation upon the natural state of fallen human beings. We live, we stand, all of us, upon the cursed ground and soil of the earth. Are you seeing how profoundly spiritual Jesus' sermon on the parable of the sower is? He preached the word. The gospel of the kingdom is meeting the crowd. Notice it's the crowd. In other words, for Mark, he's talking here, especially in terms of the church, of all humanity as the gospel will go forth. We have not narrowed this down yet to the disciples. He is meeting the crowd, the picture of humanity, exactly where they are as they walk the earth. They are fallen creatures living on cursed ground because of their own sinful action. Do you know Genesis 3? Their only hope, their only hope is in the supernatural message of the sower, the message of Jesus' gospel, the message of repentance and faith directed to their hearts in conforming their lives to actively do the will of God. When you think of the four conditions of the soil and the reception of the sower's word, we are looking right into the hearts of fallen humanity, including including the good soil. Only the sower and his word transforms the cursed ground into good soil. Saints of Christ, the voice of the firstborn of all creation, the head of his church, is going forth in the evangelistic message of his gospel and his church. The Messiah, the final one who is in the combination of being the messenger and the message 
of redemption is preaching here. Do you notice? Here's the imperative we talked about last week in verse 3. Listen. Listen. Are you listening? Are you listening to Jesus? Listen. All humanity, the crowd, must listen to the voice of Jesus. But the word of the Lord will not find a home in every heart. This incredible sermon, the first one recorded in terms of content in Mark's gospel, this incredible sermon by Jesus provides, now note this, provides a realistic picture of what will occur in response to the evangelistic word being preached by himself and to the church. This is realism. You want a church, you want a church that understands Jesus Christ in terms of the realistic aspects of the gospel, you get it right here. You get it right here. Jesus is spelling it out. This is what's going to happen with the preaching of his word faithfully. First, the gospel, the good news, will fall upon ears and hearts that turn deaf and hard immediately by the intervention of Satan taking away the word delivered to such a person. Verses 4 and 15. Second, the gospel, the good news, will fall upon receptive ears in hearts with great joy for their time. But because the word is not, has not found deep residence in their hearts, the word is without firm root. Trials and persecutions on account of a faithful commitment to the word will prove too difficult and these ones will fall away. Verses 5 and 6, verses 16 and 17. Third, the gospel, the good news will fall upon ears and hearts and the curse of the ground brings thorns that strangle the word that is in their hearts. The love, the passions, the emotions, the desires for the world and the folly of riches is really too powerful to overcome and thus their lives show forth no fruit in accordance with the will of God delivered by the truth of the gospel. Verse 7, 
18 and 90, reflecting on Genesis chapter 3, I mentioned earlier, verse 18. Then forth, the gospel of the good news will fall upon ears and hearts in which the sower will transform the curse of the soil into good soil and these sheep of the preached word will be given ears to hear. Hearts that receive the spirit of God that brings forth true repentance and faith that is anchored, that is rooted in the sower of the word, the person of Jesus, his word, his kingdom, his church, so that their lives grow towards, notice that, in verse 8, their lives grow towards Mark uses, I've pointed this out before in this gospel, Mark uses the word that he's going to use for resurrection at this point. So it grows in a life that is heavenly. That's your life (laughs) by virtue of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is growing your life upwards. A life that is heavenly, yielding much fruit in following, in doing the will of the Savior. Congregation, what a contrast to the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. In the true believer, the Holy Spirit produces the everlasting fruits of the word of the gospel unto eternal life. I ask you this morning, is this your life? Is this your life? Do you hear Jesus saying to you this morning that you, let's go back to verse 35, chapter 3. Are you hearing Jesus say to you this morning that you are his brother, sister, and mother because you are living in union with him and his word. Yes. You are living in doing the will of the triune God of heaven and earth. Jesus has invaded the creation and into your heart and into your life. 
to produce hearts that are willing to follow him. That's you, right? That's what you're saying to yourself this morning, right? Let's pray for help. Our Heavenly Father, we know we rely upon Thee for everything in terms of our salvation. We need Your direction, Your help in terms of following Your will each day. And may we see the produce of our lives always pointing towards the heavens. Because thou has brought heaven unto us. In thy son, he is the focus. His word is the focus. It is the spiritual enrichment of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.